We are going to start uh, right now, right this evening, a brand new series going through this little letter, the letter of 1 John, uh, a letter which I hope you will find uh, is incredibly pivotal for the life of the church and for our lives of faith, for uh, especially what John covers in these chapters, which might be a little bit brief, but they're also loaded with a lot of truth and a lot of wisdom. First John, of course, is a really beloved epistle written by, uh, as we could say, the, the apostle of love, the disciple whom Jesus loved himself, the apostle John, one of the oldest living apostles. He was the youngest at the time when Jesus was around, and then, of course, he uh, made it very late into the first century before he passed away on the island of Patmos. So um, what's interesting is is how John writes is so similar to his gospel, which is something we'll, we'll, we'll uh, take up and, and sort of examine a little bit further in a moment. But um, what immediately comes to the surface as if you read all of these chapters in First John, all five chapters, is John's love and affection for this audience that he has here. He truly cares for the people he's writing to, this congregation of believers. It's believed that he wrote this from the city of Ephesus where he was pastoring later in his career as a pastor and as an apostle. But over and over again, he evidences his love for this church and for perhaps the churches that he was addressing with uh, this being evidenced by the fact that he calls them many times, in fact, 11 times throughout this little letter. We won't read all evidences of it. He calls them his little children. Notice verse 1 of chapter 2 where he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And look at verse 18. Children. It is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. And then in verse 28, and now, little children, abide in him. And on it goes throughout all the rest of the remaining chapters. He over and over again refers to these believers as his little children. Which I think it's plain to see that this letter is not just coming from a scholarly mind. It's not coming from the mind of one who is just concerned about doctrine or truth or anything like that. It's coming from the pen of, we could say, a father. It's a, a very pastoral letter. And in fact, if you read all these chapters first in First John, you'll find that it's both at once a letter that's remarkably practical, but also richly theological. Especially as we open with these first four verses. It's filled with talk about love and about light and what it means to walk in love and walk in light as a child of God. It's a letter that is tender while also being bold. It's caring while also yet being convicting. It's, it's a letter that's grave that will challenge you but it is also full of grace and truth. As over and over again, John sort of just opens up his heart. His heart is on display as he pours into his spiritual sons and daughters what he is most eager to give them. Which is namely, the truth that Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus of Nazareth is God come in the flesh. That's sort of his whole impetus of writing. 
to get into the minds of these dear children, these dear believers, that you can believe firmly that Jesus is God. He is God come in the flesh, which, of course, is the exact same premise of his gospel. If you remember, uh, I'll just read it. You can mark down John chapter 20, verse 31, the famous verses at the end of his gospel. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but they are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is what his whole ministry revolved around. Evidencing, proving, sort of arguing for the fact that Jesus is not a man and not just a teacher, not just a philanthropist, not just a nice humanitarian. He is God come in the flesh. He's both God and man at the same time. And interestingly enough, if you go to 1 John chapter 5, he almost repeats the same thesis verbatim. 1 John 5, look at verse 13. In the same sort of way, he says... I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Already, he's saying, you are a people who know and believe in the Son of God because you've been discipled in the doctrine of Christ. And that I'm, I'm reminding you of these things so that you may know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have eternal life because Christ has come. You know, it's not by accident that both John's gospel and, in, in fact, if you read Second and Third John, they both revolve around the same theme as well to lesser degrees. But regardless, all of John's writings, we might say, center around this primary thesis that Jesus is God. And I'm writing this to prove that. I'm writing this so that you know that. Because this is the most central, perhaps, belief in all of the Christian life. It's interesting, there's some uncertainty as to when these letters, especially 1 John, was written. Dating them is somewhat precarious, it's somewhat difficult. The general consensus is that John wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John sometime in the mid to late 90s A.D., Again, from Ephesus, where he was pastoring, but notably pre-exile on Patmos, which is, just to say, pre-writing Revelation. So it's before all that. Some scholars vary on whether these letters came before or after his gospel. If you, again, we'll note the way he opens both. First John and the gospel of John are just almost identical. It's hard to know whether he was expanding one or the other depending on when you date them but I think much of that is kind of it doesn't really matter because I think both the gospel of John and first John are meant to be read together because in many ways first John is sort of we could say like the the practical sort of ramifications and the sort of practical consequences of what John talks about in his gospel that's what comes to life in this letter And then the gospel is, we could say, the deeper theological examination of what he talks about in this letter. Both sort of play with with the same sort of themes and connecting points. Both are meant to be read together in a way that brings out, I would say, the full of Christian hope, Christian belief, but also, especially here, the, the whole of Christian practice and, we could say, orthodoxy, if you will. One of the oddities, just continuing as we introduce this letter, is 
the way in which John begins it. Notice again verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And on he goes. You notice what's missing is this very obvious thing called a greeting. (laughs) If you look at the bulk of the rest of the letters from the New Testament, what usually happens is usually a greeting, uh, greetings to the church of Corinth, I'm Paul, greetings to you, and so on and so forth, to the saints that are at Galatia, or so on and so forth, as all, most of the other letters that are written in the New Testament begin with some sort of salutation, which usually identifies the author, identifies the, the audience, identifies some of the sort of key themes that are going to come about in the rest of the letter, but instead John, he just foregoes all of that. He doesn't have any sort of greeting, he just gets straight into the matter at hand, that which from the beginning that's what's on my heart, John is essentially saying. And it almost, feels, it almost feels like we're picking up in the middle of a conversation that's already going on. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life which was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. It feels, doesn't it? It feels as though we're picking up in the middle of a dialogue that's already been happening. And in a lot of ways, it is. Because rather than sort of easing us and his audience into the reasons for this letter, he assumes that they already perhaps know what's been going on much uh, prior to this moment of composing this letter. So it leads us to the question. What was going on in John's day that made him write so urgently? Usually you would want to ease your audience in. No, he gets straight to the point. So why this sense of urgency? It almost feels that John can't wait to get his topic out because he feels that it's so important and he wants his audience to know it so concretely. So what was happening? Well, many have identified, and I think rightly so, that there was this one, this man named Serenthus. This guy named Serenthus who was perhaps the catalyst, which I would say drove John's pen. You might be wondering who Serenthus is. Well, he was this very notable, we could definitely say, heretic of the early church. An adversary of those in the early days of the church, especially at the latter half of the first century. And he spent his time, Serenthus did, promoting all manner of false doctrines, all uh, uh, just an array of heretical ideas, and he was promoting them and preaching them as if they were gospel. And chief of these heresies was this idea that Jesus and Christ were two distinct persons or beings, that Jesus and Christ were two different people because Serenthus, as he maintains, said that Jesus was just a man, just a biological son of Joseph and Mary. And that at the baptism that we read about in Matthew chapter uh, 4, at that moment of baptism, or is Matthew 3, at that moment, the spirit of Christ, when we hear about that moment, descend upon Jesus. That's when he becomes, so to speak, Jesus Christ. But that same spirit, the same spirit of Christ, then departed from him when he ascended the cross. 
So notably, it's a man that suffers on the hill of Golgotha. Which, of course, brings up an array of more questions and difficulties that we have to get around. Of course, as we believe, we wholeheartedly believe that Jesus is the Christ, the man-God, the one who is both God and man, not partially, but fully, 100% both, at the same time. It doesn't make sense mathematically, but that's what we believe. <laughs> He's 100% both. And to reject that is to reject a whole array of things that come about, especially through Jesus' own teachings. But it most notably rejects the idea that we have a divine and perfect substitute on that cross. Making it just a man who suffers on the tree makes our salvation insufficient and makes that atoning sacrifice a little bit uh, fractured, not a little bit, a lot fractured. It's imperfect. It's not a perfect lamb that takes away the sins of the world. It is now just a man dying. But of course, many in those days, hearing about the scandal of the cross, couldn't get around this image that the one who was hanging on the tree with nails through his palms was none other than the Son of God. And again, as we've noted a couple times, this idea was entirely scandalous. And that word is used very distinctly. We can go there, but we don't have to. But in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul talks about that. This is the scandal, the offense of the cross. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. And it's offense to the, uh, uh, to the Greeks. It couldn't make sense. There's a great passage in a, in a, I should have had this in my notes, and it's just coming to my head now, but that's okay. I'll see if I can get around it. Um, but there's a great sermon that uh, G. Campbell Morgan has on this very, on the passage in 1 Corinthians, where he talks about the offense of the cross, and how all the different sort of uh, represented parties, we might say, were offended for some specific reason. The Romans they were offended because of the idea that you had someone defeated. How could you laud this defeated teacher? Of course, the Romans, what is their whole society operating on? Success, valor, honor, achievement, conquering. How in the world could you say that that man who was utterly defeated and castrated on a cross is your God? What type of God is that? Then you had the Greeks. This insane idea that a God would come down and, yes, come down to the point of death. And not only that, the point of this a type of death. A death that was reserved for the common, common criminal. How in the world could that be God? How in the world could that be anything relating to God himself at all? And of course you have the Jews who were firmly implanted with this idea that the Messiah would come and bring them out of bondage. And yet here is this one who supposedly was, claimed he was the Messiah, and now he's dying. It was an offense in any which way you thought about it. And yet, as is repeated over and over again through the New Testament, it is precisely that foolishness of the cross... That is at the center of the belief of the church. And here, John is sort of explaining why that is. 
In the Gospel of John, he explains why that is through a series of 21 chapters to show that this guy was not just a guy. He is God in the flesh, and that is on purpose because he has come to take away the sins of the world. And here, he has the similar thesis that that guy is not just a guy. He's God come in the flesh to establish his people, to affirm his church. And again, he's writing to sort of rebuff all of these uh, sort of uh, false teachings of Serenthus, which are flat out forsaking Jesus' own teachings. And such is why in 1 John 2, 18, as we already read, he calls him an antichrist. Notice 1, Corinthians, or, no, 1 John 2, 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have, all, have heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Therefore, know that we know that it is the last hour. And jump down to verse 22. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. He's reminding this congregation, you already know who's lying. You know because we've taught you. You know because you have the apostles' doctrine in your hearts and souls and minds. And he calls them out. Remember who is truly the liar. Look, remember who is trying to pull the wool over your eyes, so to speak, he says. And he also does this by appealing, if you jump back to chapter 1, by appealing to, it's not just his firsthand knowledge, but it's all of the apostles' firsthand knowledge. Notice again verse 1 of chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life which was made manifest and, notice, we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and, is, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. In a span of four verses, he mentions we or our 13 times. Which is just to say, I think John is basically opening this letter saying, we're not making this up. What we have taught you, what we are, are instilling in you, and what we are proclaiming as God's, as the, as the apostles of Christ, as God's servants and messengers, we're not talking out of our heads. We're not sort of talking out of our own imaginations, as perhaps cough someone you might know, Serenthus. That's essentially what he's trying to instill in them. We know all these things because we've seen it. We've sought, we've seen him, we've touched him, we've heard him, we've been around him. You can sense John's urgency that you must believe my testimony because I'm not making it up out of thin air like this other guy is. In a way, these verses in verses 1 through 4 kind of represent John's entire message. The entire Truth that he wants to get out is right here in these four verses. His primary concern is that his children know beyond a shadow of a doubt who Christ is. His identity. He is the son of God. He is God come in the flesh. 
Which is just to say, in sort of an opposite way, the gist of this whole opening paragraph is to sort of uh, to sweep the legs out from under his opponent. <laughs> and expose them as witnesses of nothing. Notice he is saying, we are witnesses of him. We are witnesses of this one, the one who is the life. Which is just to say, by the opposite token, this other guy is a witness of nothing. One commentator put it like this, Serenthus and his supporters are not witnesses. They have heard, seen, beheld, touched, nothing. Which is essentially what John is trying to say. They've touched nothing. They haven't seen or been with Christ. We were there. You can sense this urgency that he's trying to instill in his hearers. We were there. We were around him. We were close to him. We could smell him. We were with Jesus that closely. So he says from the very beginning that the testimony of Serenthus, this guy who's perhaps in your ear, church, this guy who's trying to swindle you to, yes, totally sweep your faith from out of its supports, his testimony is flawed. It's false. But our testimony as John is here saying, is firm. It's firm because of who it is in and in who it comes from. It is not a testimony we make up. It's a testimony we've been given and it is our joy, he says, to write and proclaim this testimony to you. Again, unlike those good-for-nothing antichrists, John and the apostles, they knew what they were talking about. And what's fascinating is that these teachings of Serenthus weren't just isolated to this period of history. And in fact, this teaching is what we would pro- probably later more commonly know as Gnosticism. It's, he was an early Gnostic in the church, which is just this idea that he proclaims and stands to, he stands somewhat on Christian doctrine, but then proclaims that he has higher or superior illumination. And that if you want salvation, you have to have that same sort of superior illumination as the teacher has proclaimed. Which, of course, is a bunch of hogwash. But also, if you notice, this is why a lot of the New Testament is writing against these early forms of Gnosticism. But it infects the church for many decades later. And in fact... A few decades after John, there's this early church father, you might know him as Irenaeus. And he sort of carried on the torch, so to speak, of proclaiming the word of life. Irenaeus was a bishop that was mostly ministering in modern-day France. Interestingly enough, he was, a, he was sort of the grandson of John, if you will. He was a disciple of the one named Polycarp, who was also a direct disciple of John himself. So Irenaeus, as he writes in the second century, is not too far removed even from John's day. And he writes in a book that's entitled Against Heresies, In the late 170s AD, Irenaeus says that he's writing to, quote, remove that error which by Serenthus has been disseminated among men. He's still writing to refute the error of Serenthus, this idea that God didn't come in the flesh, that Jesus wasn't God in the flesh, God with a body, we might say. He's writing to refute that. 
Even decades later, this false teaching had reared its ugly head in ways that could barely be fathomed. He was regarded as this arch enemy of the gospel. And in fact, in that same book against, heresy, against heresies, Irenaeus records this story, which is sort of a hearsay story from Polycarp. So who knows if it's exactly true that one time John was uh, about to go into the common bathhouse, but he heard that Serenthus was in there. And so John shouts out, quote, let us flee Lest also the baths fall in, since Serenthus is inside, the enemy of the truth. <laughs> he was so adamant that this one Serenthus was against the gospel, that according to Polycarp, he refused to even fraternize in the same location as him. Which is just to say, this is a very serious topic. Which is just to say again, this is, Paul, this is John's urgency. Evidencing, putting forth the very fact that this is the Son of God, Jesus himself. And it's interesting because debates about Jesus' identity as the Son of God even persist today. It's not a new thing. People are still arguing over uh, Jesus' uh, deity, whether he claimed to be God or not, which if you're debating that, you haven't been reading the Bible very well. And I think the reason why this debate persists this debate, which in my mind, maybe I'm not being very considerate, but in my mind, this debate, which shouldn't exist, but it's a debate that continues, and I think it continues primarily because of the fact that if you admit Jesus is the Christ of God, everything else has to fall in place. If you admit that, then everything else is true. If Jesus has gone in the flesh, then all those stories, all the miracles, all of those amazing stories that come about from the Gospels, including his resurrection, all of those are true. And if all of those are true, all of the words that Jesus ever said was true. And if that's true, then I have to fall on my knees at the face of this one who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that's just something that the heart of man isn't too willing to do oftentimes. This is the greatest hurdle, but it's the hurdle that is perhaps so clearly decimated throughout all of the Bible. That Jesus is God in the flesh and he has come to take away the sins of the world. And believing that is truly life altering. And that's why John's writing. Because of the, one of the most central doctrines of the church, of being anyone who claims to be a Christian at all, this is at the heart of it all, that Jesus is the Christ. And I think this is why John is so adamant that he, not just he, but all the other apostles, you can imagine him saying you could go talk to them if some of them were still alive, you could go talk to them. They have empirical knowledge of this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. First-hand experience with him. With this one, as he says, who was from the beginning. It's interesting, isn't it? He barely mentions Jesus until verse 3. But he calls him what? He calls him that which was from the beginning. Here he's bearing just undeniable witness that Jesus is the Christ of God. He was the life, as he says here, made manifest for us all. 
Notice, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. It appeared, and we have seen it, and not just seen it, and we testify to it, and we preach it, we proclaim it to you, that the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son Jesus Christ this is who Christ is he's saying this is who Jesus is he's not just a teacher he is the life made manifest he's eternal life embodied eternal life come in flesh and blood he is Yahweh that has come down to earth with skin and bone that's who he is This is the manner in which God makes himself known. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Look at this one who comes to reveal the heart of the Father. As we've said before, Jesus doesn't come to change God's mind. He comes to show us exactly what is in God's mind, what is in God's heart, which is namely redemption. And that's what it's been from before the foundation of the world. And most amazingly, this should be the fact that just makes our jaws drop, that God decides to make himself known through our creaturely faculties, our senses. Sight and sound and and touch and taste. That's how he makes himself known. As Paul is here, or John is here saying, we've looked at him, we've touched him, we've, we've seen him with our eyes. Touched him with our hands. This is not third hand knowledge. We've actually been there. And you can imagine him saying, this Christ, he was no phantom, he was no apparition, he was no figment of our imaginations that we've made up. He's the creator God, come to earth to be like one of his creatures. That means he comes down to earth with a body that could be touched, a body that could sweat, a body that could get dirty, and namely, a body that could bleed. Because that's where our salvation is found. Jumping ahead, a a teaser for our study in Hebrews. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Listen to this amazing passage at the very beginning of sort of the preacher's argument in Hebrews. Hebrews is essentially a sermon. A 13-part sermon evidencing that Jesus is better. And notice what he says here. Hebrews 2, look at verse 14. Since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood. So since therefore man is made of flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus himself, partook of the same things, that is flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when he is tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Wow! 
Just like we are made of flesh and blood, he too was made of flesh and blood, yet without sin. Why? So that he could die. So that his body could be broken and our sins could be atoned by a perfect lamb. Not one who was merely man. It is true, as Jesus says in the Gospel of John, that no greater, sacri- no, no greater love has man known than this than one lays down his life for his friends. And truly, we know that when we hear and talk about perhaps uh, police officers laying down their lives for the sake of others or those who lose their lives on the battlefield in the military. But for all of their sacrifice, their lives are not perfect. Therefore, we can think of that same sacrifice in a way that is amazing and true. But it's not perfect because who's dying? Just a man or a woman. But who is this Jesus who dies? He is God in the flesh. Dying in the most egregious way, but dying perfectly. As he says that he's giving up his life for the sake of those whom he loves. Why? So that our sins could be paid for in full. And this is what John is writing about. As he says in verse 4 back in our text, he's writing these things. Why? So that our joy might be made complete. It's his joy, it's his thrill to write down this message and affirm that the church has no truer foundation, no sweeter message than what? That Jesus is the Christ of God. And in fact, that's the reason we're here. Why do we, why do we gather as a church on Sundays, on any day? Why do we gather like this in a building Why not just stay at home in our pajamas and watch online? We gather bodily because this is what evidences the power of God. Notice there was one who was writing recently. He said, quote, what makes our gatherings so powerful? The fact that you are physically there. You see, you hear, you feel. There's sort of an incarnation happening when we gather as the body of Christ, as his church. If Christ was not, we could say, embodied, we would have no reason to be either. And in fact, all throughout the New Testament, what's that word that pops up? Ecclesia, church, which literally means assembly or a gathered people. It occurs 117 times in the New Testament's roundabout. And this is why we assemble this right here. The church is the assembled people of God gathering to rejoice and remember what? Their embodied Savior. We interact as the family of God in ways that allow us to see and hear and feel and touch the same way in which Paul, uh, John is writing here. We have seen and felt and heard and touched. It is so important to our faith that when we assemble as the body of Christ, we are reminded of what? Of what John talks about in his gospel, of the one who came and became flesh and dwelt among us. And in fact, I would even say that when John writes that for God so loved the world, I think he means for us to think about this love that is 
comes from this God who has a body. It is a love that is enfleshed. This is what we believe. That God is, comes down. He doesn't stay up in his lofty tower and puts a distance between him and human suffering. He takes it on himself in a way that we can barely fathom. And he takes it on himself because we are his, as, he, as the writer of the Hebrews says, we are his brothers and sisters. He, as that great doctrine that comes out of the Old Testament, he is our brother redeemer, our kinsman redeemer. Who comes and stakes his claim on you and I that we are his prized possession. And by blood he's buying us back. And this is why we gather as the church to remember this God who came down. Came down and put himself in the form of a servant. And was made in the likeness of men as Paul talks about. And was obedient unto death even The death of the cross. That's why we're here. That is our hope as the body of Christ. Let us pray.